it annoys me that like influencer metrics are just basically completely made up. It was the second hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. The, <laughs> the first hardest was definitely being a startup founder. Because, you know, if you throw a million dollars here and there, if one company is wild, wildly successful and becomes a billion dollar company, you know, you get paid out. If you're going in at a founder level, absolutely negotiate your severance beforehand, pre-negotiate. Mm-hmm. It's like a prenup for work, right? I am glad I've had all this experience because like even though while I may not be where I thought I would be and where society says I am like I don't regret that I tried all these things welcome back to passion project pending this is your host Rosie for those who don't know, I work as a data engineer in San Francisco and I'm on the hunt for career guidance and advice as I navigate several seemingly unrelated interests, LOL, from fashion and technology to entrepreneurship and whatever else catches my eye day to day. I also change my exact pitch on this podcast just about every week, so take it all with a grain of salt if you can. Speaking of navigating your interests and careers, Have you ever thought about starting a company or trying to be a content creator or going back to school or switching industries mid-career? If so, my guest's insight this week may give you some guidance. Adrian Lin is a food blogger, software engineer, and recovering tech founder. In other words, she's an incredible guest for me to have on this podcast, which is meant to be geared towards discovering what you love to do and aligning that with your career. I used to work with Adrian at Poshmark, so that is how I knew her from before. She has over 10 years of industry experience working as a civil engineer, product manager, backend engineer, product engineer, and even startup CTO. On top of all of that, she has a blog and Instagram account where she posts about local restaurant experiences as well as sharing an unfiltered version of her life. Adrian also attended a well-known coding bootcamp called App Academy mid-career when she decided to pivot into being a software engineer. As for her experience as a CTO of a startup building software for veterinary clinics, I have never heard a story like this before, and while I will save it for the episode, the result is that Adrian considers herself an advocate for startup transparency. All in all, Adrian has so much wisdom to provide in whatever you might be navigating, Whether you're just starting out in your career or thinking about any sort of influencing or content creation, enrolling in a coding bootcamp, or co-founding a startup. So excited to have her. Let's get into it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Okay, so I would love to start by asking you how you first found like blogging and why you decided to do that, like blog about food. Yeah, so it's really interesting because I... Like, grew up feeling like I didn't like writing. I feel like English was, like, my least favorite class. But, like, I feel like I always loved sharing my ideas and just, yeah, just sharing my passion with people. And I feel like writing was the most obvious way to do that. And I've been told I'm, like, a pretty decent writer, too. So I think it just naturally lent itself to a blog. Um, I started initially, like, writing, like, Yelp reviews. And I actually found it really fun I like wrote Yelp reviews with the intent of like sharing like fun finds rather than I think a lot of people like use Yelp to complain. But I like write about like, you know, restaurants I enjoyed going to. And so I think that just naturally evolved over time to, hey, I want to like put my like my content in a space that I personally owned, make it more official. And so I just turned into a food blog. I gotcha. Okay. Do you interact with readers of your blog? Like how do readers find you usually? 
Yeah, so I don't have much interaction with readers in my blog. They will occasionally like comment on like my about me page um, or like on individual posts, but it's more like I would say they they always find me on Google. Usually, I get some traffic through Instagram, but it's mainly through Google, and it's usually the international restaurants that actually get traction.、Mm. So, like,、um, I did a Barcelona trip a while ago, and like, I went to a bunch of like, I guess, really notable, famous restaurants there, and so like, those blog posts still show up when people Google it, and I think I'm like, I don't know, in the top like five to ten results of some of those things. So, just more more traction internationally, but people still find me through like the local SS. Restaurants too. I think it's just less people searching for it. Gotcha. That's so cool.、Oh, wouldn't have known that. How about on Instagram? Like, could you talk a little bit about how you got started and like what initially inspired you to blog about food on Instagram, post about food? Yeah. So I was an early adopter of Instagram. I was using it in I would say like grad school, which for me was what like 2011 or so, and that was just. I know about like my random life. I feel like it was like a replacement for I don't know, like when I was using Zango or like Live Journal or something. But I was just posting photos of everything I randomly did, and it turned out to be a lot of food photos. I just naturally loved food, and I think I realized I was spamming my friends with just food all the time. And so I was like, why don't I just make this into an actual like food dedicated Instagram?、Um, and I was actually vacationing in Vietnam at the time, and I was jet lagged, and so I was like, why don't I start this Instagram page on food that I've been wanting to do? That's that's how it started. Nice. So you just at first you started because you just wanted a separate place to post about food. Yeah, I wanted a focused Instagram page that was only for food. I thought about like it would be cool. This actually took off and it grew too, but it was more like to separate like my own personal random like musings with just a place that's fun food. Okay, so you must have then like when do you think you started that that separate Instagram account? That was in 2017. Okay,、yeah. gotcha. Do you feel like you noticed like cha- like a lot of changes in Instagram and like how it affected like either what you would post or like your account or, like growth or anything? I mean, you must have been through several iterations of like algorithms.、Yeah. So yeah, I feel like like、yeah. 2017 makes me like ancient in Instagram world. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, definitely back then it was like one photo per post, you know, and that was it. Yeah. And, It was just super simple, and you know, like it, I probably spent more time doing captions or even like there wasn't even that much photo editing. I feel like it just like used the weird Instagram filters, and like if I look back on it, like things were like all dark and weird, like the filters. Yeah.、Um, and then you know, then they added, they started adding video, and then of course it turned into reels once like TikTok started challenging them, and I think that got universally. I feel like among the content creators I know, like. No one really liked it at first because most people are using Instagram, you know, because they wanted these photos, and like people are using TikTok because they wanted the short form video. So it's like a lot of people I knew were using both. At least, like, I'm speaking from like, you know, my my me and my friends are like definitely like solidly millennials, and so like we still had like both versus maybe Gen Z was just always TikTok. But like for us, it's like I saw like Instagram as a place of more curated videos, curated photos rather, and so. When the algorithm started pushing like the reels, it's like definitely my engagement like just completely like、um, got shot. I feel like it's never recovered. But the influencers I know that were able to like rapidly switch to reels and just they started like just pumping out like a reel a day, then they took off really fast. So 
it's like either like your account is completely dead or now you have a new way of like going super viral really fast. Interesting. Did you like adapt to posting reels like at all or did you is that just like not something you wanted to do? I was pretty resistant. I think it took me Mm -hmm. over a year to like really start doing reels. Like I sort of like tried a little bit and I was like, uh, like not that because I already had a TikTok too. And yeah, so like I felt like I was just doing double the work. And then I think, I don't know, in the last year or so, I started like exclusively only doing reels. And then I feel like in the last few months, I sort of have it's come back around. I'm like, I'm just going to post whatever I want. Yeah. So now I'm just like <laughs> posting a random photo and being like me just talking about my life again. So it's sort of come full circle. And mm. I think it helps that like I rapidly like all of a sudden got a ton of followers from one reels. So I saw like the power of reels. Like, oh, okay. So I was on last year, I think it was around November. I was on vacation in Cancun. I went to like, we just like stumbled into this random restaurant that was super over the top. But I just like made a real, I didn't put that much effort into it. it like, like I took a, a, like someone else's voice, you know, one of those reels and I yeah. just like used that. And then, so it was like a really funny clip. And then I just posted a bunch of these things about this restaurant, but I think it was just super, I, that combination was super like eye catching, I guess. So, and I used reverse psychology, like the, the um, audio said like, do not follow me. And so, like, from that alone, I got, I think, over 75,000 followers from that one one reel alone. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay. Like, I'm like, I can just sort of post whatever I want. Like, I don't really need to. I never thought I would get that many followers. And, like, I don't really – I never really wanted to make this into a full-time thing. So, I'm like, I'm sort of at the point where I'm like, okay. Like, even if I lose – like, I don't post consistently anymore. So, I'm Uh losing followers. I'm like, even if I lose, like – I don't know, a thousand followers a month or something. I'm like, I'm very happy with my following. Yeah. Oh my um, gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So you just never know. Like all it takes is one reel for you to blow up. Yeah. That's um, wild. Do you feel like there's ever a time where, or like maybe now or like maybe not, where you like would plan your content? Yeah. And like try to post like like every day or every, like how, how was that for you? Yeah, definitely the first like few years my Instagram like when it was just like when it was you know like only static photos it was a lot more easier to like curate this aesthetic feed and that's what like Instagram was known for you know like just like having this really pretty looking feed when you scroll through your own profile so like I would try to make like the tones and all the photos like edited in the same way so it would look Mm -hmm. cohesive and then like it would gradually shift to a different tone i would have i used an app where i would like plan out like you know the the grid would look like like the nine images and then i would like shuffle around my different plan posts so like it would fit better i went through a phase where so i initially had like two accounts and then my personal account sort of morphed into like a travel account so I sort of had like a travel and a food account going on and it became too much work so i combined my accounts again so my food account is now sort of just my personal whatever account. Yeah. Um, so when I first combined it, I intentionally alternated every other post. Like one post was food. One post was like travel la- lifestyle content. Mm. Um, so it's just heavily, heavily curated. But it's sort of nice now, like now that Reels has happened, like Reels has sort of just made it like no one really cares how like mm. aesthetic your Instagram your actually looks. Yeah. So yeah, are your your profile, I guess. Yeah, I guess your personal profile. Yeah. yeah. Like my Reels yeah. page, like, you know, and if you go to the Reels tab, like that's still like sort of like um, aesthetic. Like I'll make sure the cover shot like looks pretty, mm-hmm. whatever, and I'll label the Reel um, with like, you know, a title or something. But other than that, it's it's like just way more whatever, which is sort of nice. Was it just like 
an inclination of yours, like just being on Instagram a lot that you wanted to like make it very curated or did you like, like, how did you learn to do that? Or is it just like the vibe, like you wanted it to look aesthetic? Yeah, I think it was like, I think my personality and also what like I was inspired by other influencers, like, like some of the like big, big accounts I followed back in the day were like big travel accounts and they just had like very pretty like Lightroom presets and then so they would like use the same type of preset for like everything. And I just like, I realized like a followed accounts based on how like aesthetic their page looked. Mm. So even if like something, you know, grabbed me like a single post, I would still go to their account and like, you know, look at their other posts. And if like the feed is pretty, I'm like, oh, this is like a reason for me to like follow them. And I see. Yeah. It's crazy how it's evolved probably. Yeah. Like to see that now it feels like Instagram is copying TikTok kind of. Yeah. But it's still very different. Like, I feel like the reels are still much more aesthetic than videos on TikTok for the most part. Yeah. I still think it's because of the way the algorithms, like, work. Like, you know, TikTok was known for just, like, being able to completely, like, tailor your feed to whatever you like really quickly without you ever having to follow anyone, right? Mm -hmm. And then, like, I feel like Instagram is still sort of focused on like you still follow personalities um you know and there's like that explore or whatever page but like it's still mm-hmm. like sort of at least the way i use in a lot more old school people it's like you still have people that you follow and you and so like i don't just like mass follow someone who's real like randomly goes viral that like you know i'll still like go to their page and be like do i find them interesting enough like do the yeah. other reels whereas i feel like tiktok is sort of just like because you're not really even encouraged to really follow people. It's just like, oh, like, you know, if you like a reel, if you engage with it, you sort of know the algorithm will, like, yeah, surface more. that's true. Oh, another question. So do you have a media kit? And mm-hmm. do you use your analytics to, like, communicate with brands, like, what you can provide them? And if so, what do you think of the analytics that these platforms provide you? Like, how accurate do you think they are? Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's funny because, yeah, I'm very, um, maybe because I've, you know, always worked in, like, quite logical roles in my career. Like, so I'm, like, very particular about data accuracy. <laughs> and, like, it annoys me that, like, influencer metrics are just basically completely made up. Um, okay, analytics. I love that. Let's hear yeah, more about that. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I have a media kit. It's a pretty new thing. Create a media kit. Yeah, like around November when I like blew up because before November, I was like hovering around like, like 20 to 25,000 followers, like, mm-hmm. you know, since um since I started. And so after I blew up, I'm like, oh, maybe there's new opportunities. So I took the time to create a media kit. I used Canva, I used one of their templates. So like, it was super easy to do. And then I was like, okay, now I need some metrics. Um, and so Instagram itself is, I think maybe it's just their UI is not clear, but like I noticed that when you go to like, there's like the 30 day view of like your reach, et cetera. And regardless of like how you filter that, like whether it's last seven days or last whatever, like month, it shows like the same metrics. And so like, I just don't think it's very accurate what it's, what's actually representing and then then there's a bunch of like third party um, companies that try to, you know, use the Instagram API. But I imagine they just like don't have like people intentionally like actually validating like if the software engineers are like using the API in the correct way. And so like all the metrics are different. Like I think I surveyed like four different 
or I looked at my metrics from four different companies. The reason I found these companies are usually they're also attached to like PR agencies or like, you know, like influencer, like management companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've worked with them before. I've used them to find collabs. And so they'll like show you the metrics they pulled. And like all four were like vastly different. I actually like I think I still have a highlight on my Instagram page about just how different it was. I felt the need to vent to my Mm -hmm. stories. But there was one that's like, oh, like, you know, like 70% of my followers are like women. And the other one is like, oh, maybe it was like 30%. And then things like even like, oh, demographic, like, where are you from? You know, some of them are like, oh, like maybe 50% is from the U.S. Some are like it's like 30% U.S. It's just literally there's it's all over the place. And so I just picked the ones. Honestly, I made my profile look the best and put that on my media kit. Gotcha. That's so interesting because... Yeah, I've thought about that as well. Just like, how are these metrics being calculated? And is there a way to even validate them, I guess? Yeah. Both on TikTok and Instagram. I've been curious about that. And then also, like, I would hear a lot about, like, engagement matters a lot more than, like, the following. So if, if people are actually looking at, like, engagement, like, how accurate is that? you know yeah and it can be really skewed like it's like because i don't post consistently my engagement's like pretty bad um honestly but like if i just have like one tiktok i mean not one one reel go viral like like i think i had my last viral reel was maybe like a couple months ago and that's at like over uh, yeah over four million views at this point and so like that itself you know, there's just the amount of likes that come with that, that completely skews the the engagement because some companies use maybe the last 30 days to calculate engagement. Some companies maybe use the last 20 posts. So even the way they calculate is different. But if you just have one, it completely skews your percentage. Yeah. Is it like likes per post? I mean, that would skew it one way or like just, yeah. Yeah. yeah like likes. I think they usually like add up the likes and the, and the comments and then divide mm. over the followers you have. That's interesting because it's like an outlier. So it will like outweigh everything. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so even if like all my other ones were bad, like at some point I think my engagement was like, look like it was like 20% or something. And it was like, there's no way it's like, I feel Mm. like it's not even 1%. (laughs) That's interesting. Okay. And so how do you handle like collaborations with brands? Like, do you use your media kit primarily? Like, do you reach out? Like how much of these collaborations or anything that you do are from you reaching out versus like them. That was a lot of questions, but you know. Yeah. Um, when I, so when I first started the very beginning, I would say maybe the first year or so I did a little bit of outreach into local restaurants. Then I think I very quickly was like, Oh, like things just started coming in. I still don't really know how people discover me. Like, I, I guess I don't know just they're just randomly will show up on maybe like hashtags I used to use hashtags a lot more and so maybe it was through that or just through like if I go to you know a geotag maybe okay I think after the first like just maybe 10 collabs or so I stopped reaching out because people just started coming to me which was pretty cool and now like I just sort of sit back and like I usually ignore most of the outreach requests because it's not you know my full-time job and I just do it for fun and I never intend to like really make a living out of it. So I'm not like really hustling. So yeah, it's sort of nice that they just reach out to me. And honestly, most most of the requests, I would say like 90% of them don't ask for a media kit. Like today, I, I today actually, I just sent a media kit over to one request, but that's like actually the biggest one I've ever gotten. It's like a potential trip to Fiji. 
And I was like, that's like incredible. So I sent them over a media kit because I want to be more compelling. But like I looked at the media kit and last time I touched it was like, I think it was like May 3rd or something. It's like I, I rarely use. I use it like every couple months maybe. Wow. VG. Yeah. What? <laughs> I know. Fingers crossed. I, I get it. Like I think they're still deciding on the influencers they're going to pick. But yeah, oh they wanted gosh. to like target like food influencers to showcase the food in Fiji or, or something. <laughs> Wait, so then with like that sort of thing that, I mean, they reach out to you. Yeah. You still just want it to be, you don't want to do it full time. Is that because you prefer software engineering more? Like the stability of that or like what is your thought around? Oh, there's just no. I definitely can't do it full time, at least the way I've been managing my account because I just don't really get paid. So like, yeah, so like my media kit will have these rates that I think are are quite fair but the reality is um especially in the niche i focus on which is restaurants like mm-hmm. restaurants have basically no budget to pay you know people so they'll just give me food okay. right and then and then like some of the i guess the ones who work with pr agencies or just the ones who like have more experience they'll realize they also need to cover the server's tip mm-hmm. right but a lot of restaurants like don't even cover the server's tip and i know influencers like they don't pay tip but like you know unless it's like a a whole media event you know where it's like everyone's there for media and stuff like like that's fine but in a lot of situations it's just like you're just coming in as a regular customer but you know like the restaurant will comp your your ticket but like yeah. the server could care less right they still want to be tipped out so yeah. like so i joke that like i'd actually lose money with every collab and i'm just i'm purely just doing it as a passion because I, I love helping out restaurants um, okay like i do know a few local influencers um that have been able to make a living out of it but they they don't focus on restaurants at all or exclusively they they have pivoted more towards like larger food brands like we're mm-hmm. working with chain restaurants like you know panera or like kind of like mgm hotels or something mm-hmm. um so yes yeah, so like the big brand names are the ones that will do really big payouts i see yeah okay and so you're saying like with your niche which is like like local restaurants. local restaurants yeah that's like not something that you would sustainably live off of no yeah okay. i like i barely get paid if ever for any okay. post yeah so it's just sort of a product exchange mm-hmm. um and so for me it's like if, since because it is a product exchange like i have to be very picky with you know where i go like i don't want to just because it takes a lot of time you know to edit and create content and also yeah. to engage and stuff so I usually only go to places if I'm already like if I would pay out of pocket myself. So that's what I that's how I choose my clubs. If it's like a restaurant, I would actually personally pay for. Okay, yeah, that's interesting because I like at first glance you see um, an Instagram profile with like as many followers as you do, and like I feel like my initial thought is like they could do any collab in theory. So is mm-hmm. it not like that? Like really you see success in getting collabs with just like that mainly like have you ever had collab requests from like other products or anything yeah so the ones i do usually get a payout are like more of a lifestyle type of like focus so like i worked with bumble a couple of times um and they paid a little bit and then lyft also paid me so like that's like pretty random i think those were all during mm-hmm. the pandemic okay. so i think they were just like they were more like they used a lot more like micro influencers at that point. So they're willing to pay 
Um, mm. But now it's like, I don't really see any of those requests coming in. So I think like those bigger brands, I get the sense I usually like, maybe they actually like will pay more for like a, a bigger influencer rather than, I guess there's like a couple strategies, right? Rather than like just paying a lot of smaller influencers, a small amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's why I also enjoy having like, even though my Instagram is very tailored towards food, it sort of is just like a whatever account, yeah. like just me posting, especially in my stories, which is, it gives me that flexibility to also yeah. take on those random um, collabs. Yeah, for sure. Well, fingers crossed that this trip works out. Yeah. Another question, I what do you put on your media kit? Yeah, so I have, you know, just like a little bit about me. Um, and the things I focus on. So obviously like food and travel, but also like other topics. Like I talk about, you know, being Asian American. I talk about like plants randomly. Like, so I'll just like post a bunch of, I guess, like, you know, keywords. It's almost like sort of like a LinkedIn profile where it's like Mm -hmm. things that are like, you know, catchy for, you know, potential PR person or whatever that, um, and then I post, or then I have my metrics, which for me, like I actually do right like where I got the metrics from so as I use a company called like I think it's CIPIO or something dot AI and that's where I use for the metrics but I think a lot of people honestly they just like just make up numbers because it is like all over the place wow. yeah okay yeah and then I put my rates so I think the most important part of me to kid I think is they ask for it because they want to see your like your rate card yeah so like I put my rates for like real you know or the starting minimum and then you know, a post, um, a blog. I also mentioned my blog on there. So I put a rate for the blog or just like custom content curation. But I'll be honest, like no one's ever paid me the full rate. It's more of like a, oh, here, like here's what I feel like I should be paid. And then like, you, you know, like, okay, if you like give me an equivalent or not even equivalent, but like I give you enough in like product, maybe mm-hmm. I'll take it. Okay. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Yeah. I saw my first media kit the other day, someone else's and I didn't realize it was just like, yeah, like a Canva or like a PDF. Like I imagined it as like something with like actual videos for some reason. Oh, yeah. But I also was thinking like mainly through TikTok, I guess, just because that's my experience. Whereas Instagram, I guess I wouldn't necessarily like be video, like guaranteed. Um, yeah. But I never thought about it like that. Like it's just like a static representation of your account, like what you post about. Yeah. And you'd like, it definitely helps to link towards your link to your contents. So, like I'll link to like, um, like my videos or link to my blog. It's like at the very end, I'll have, I have four examples of like previous collabs I've done and the brands I worked with. And then I'll link to the actual post. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So cool. I love to hear all the details of that. Yeah, I'm happy to send it to you. <laughs> if oh, you want to just you. look at it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I was going to say I have a recommendation for you for food if you're interested. It would probably be just free product, but I work at a bakery on the weekends called Butter and Crumble, and it's like oh, a yeah. pop-up. You, have you heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it. Okay, yeah. yeah. But if you like pastry, very cool stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love pastries. Like, yeah. yeah, I did a recent – it wasn't really a collab. It was, I was just invited to be a judge on like the best – the annual I best – yeah croissant contest and i was like this is literally my dream i was like this is the peak of my wait that my, was so like, cool influencer experience and yeah like it was unpaid but i was just like this is just so cool to be here judging croissants because i like everyone else it was like happening to me and one of my actually really close friends she also is an influencer but mm-hmm. we didn't know we were both beyond the panel and so i thought it would be like a bunch of different influencers as well as you know chefs and bakers people who actually know who they're ta- what they're talking about 
And it turns out it's like four like super French white men who like they either like own a bakery or they're like culinary instructors. And there's like me and my other influencer friend. And we're like, we're just here for like the diversity. But but it was it was so fun. Oh, my goodness. And you rated like what? five like how many croissants it was um eight different bakeries bakeries. so they they rotate i don't really know how they pick the bakeries every year um but i think Mm -hmm. they do some sort of rotation to sort of like make it you know like um not more fair but you know just have like a more wide variety because i feel like there's a couple of you know like names that are known in sf to be like the croissant place and so they pick the bakeries and so we didn't get to pick the initial bakeries but among those eight we rated them on just like the plain butter croissant Mm. and then we rated them on a special pastry as well okay so it was 16 different pastries and i was i was in heaven (laughs) like yeah yeah wow yeah was Aristica there? Yeah, they weren't. They weren't there. They weren't there. Yeah, but like they're known for being like the one of the best. So yeah, I'm sure they've like been in past years probably. But like this year, they weren't. They weren't like in the in the running. Wow, I'm shook. Yeah, shooketh. Yeah. What was your favorite like specialty croissant? Just curious. I think the specialty that was hard because they were all over the place. Like, okay. like not like in a bad way, but they were just so different. Right. So it was hard to actually pick a favorite. But um, the my favorite one was maybe the the shoe or I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's like C-H-O-U-X. Yeah. 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 And so it's like the cream puff um, from Maison Nico. They also won the best croissant. So okay. like I think for, for me, it was just like they just did everything amazingly. The The best cr- traditional croissant, all the judges actually, we, so it was like a blind tasting and we didn't talk to each other. But afterwards, like, you know, when it was revealed, we realized we all picked the same winner. It's like, so it was just, it wasn't honestly, well, I don't know if I can say this, but it wasn't really close. Um, Maisonica was just like excellent. Um, and then for me, they're, um, they had like a chocolate shoe with an avocado cream filling and oh, wow. it was just I, I loved it the the overall winner though for specialty pastry uh that all the other judges picked were um i think it was for an bakery i think it's um somewhere in east bay okay yeah i feel like th- that was the one and then they had a rhubarb seasonal one wow yeah yeah i saw that that bakery that I guess made the shoe one and I never heard of them so I need to go for sure yeah they're they're also a restaurant too I haven't yeah I haven't oh. been to their um actual brick and mortar but I've ordered um from them like a bunch of their croissants and yeah they're just they they're like excellent but I definitely want to taste their savory food and see what it's like too oh yum put that on my list to go visit okay now to pivot and talk about your experience with software engineering. So what initially led you to want to be a software engineer and how did you come to realize that you prefer product engineering? Um, what do you prefer about it? Yeah, I feel like I was always very into math and science in school. Like that was obvious to me that um, STEM was like my thing and I like now with more experience I realized I was really lucky actually to grow up in an environment where that was just the norm for for women like it wasn't weird to be in STEM and so I was always drawn to technical roles but I think it took me a while to figure out like what type of STEM role I wanted so I I majored my undergrad major was civil engineering with a structural concentration right I worked in that for a little bit and then I also then I pivoted to network engineering so telecom um, and then I was like, this is just all a little bit boring. Like, I think for me, 
the joy of like solving like a really hard problem set in school like that's like you know as a nerd I was like I, that was just what I really loved I'm like can I find a job that's like that challenging and like actually make a career out of it and so I s- decided to switch into like the tech world because I was already in the Bay Area with um with my telecom job with Verizon and so I I joined a startup as a as a PM as a product manager with no product experience but I someone from actually my high school was the recruiter at the small startup and so I was able to join in with like a PM role in quotes but it was sort of the size of the startup was it was like 60 something people so I sort of was doing everything I was like doing IT I was doing HR um, it wasn't traditional PM, but that was the first time I really like, like understood what like being in a tech startup was like. And I was like, I see how software engineers are challenged, you know, that's like they're literally like solving intense problems and things are so dynamic. And, and just like, I feel like the work they're pushing out is just like things just iterate so much more quicker than, you know, traditional engineering role. Mm. So I decided to join us to do a software boot camp and then they just sort of I just took off and it went from there um, and I also have to credit my brother I don't know if you realize this but he he went to school for CS undergrad and so I think I just saw like his career trajectory and I was like oh like I'm really inspired to also do the same thing and so yeah mm. that's how I found my way into software and I can definitely say it is even more challenging than I ever imagined but it's like what I was seeking for this whole time in a career yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you found it. How was the experience of the boot camp for you? Yeah, it was it was the second hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. The <laughs> the first hardest was definitely being a startup founder. But the boot camp was it was not easy. It was three months and I went to boot camp called App Academy. And so it was at the time it was the only boot camp I knew of where you didn't have to pay everything up front which I, I really liked because it just seemed like it was a very fair model. Like you weren't gated by, you know, how much you could pay. But like now I look back on it, actually, I don't think I would recommend that sort of model because I feel like they mm-hmm. really they really take advantage of like they take a big percent of your first job, you know, if you get a job as like payment. Oh. Yeah. So for me, like I, I still was able to pay everything up front. So I didn't have to like deal with that like crazy like rate. But it was it was quite expensive. I think for me, it was still like $17,000 or something up front. Um, and that was like the discounted rate for three months. Yeah, for three months. But like, you know, for me, it was is definitely worth it with mm-hmm. that amount. I think it was it's almost like I want to say it's almost like 30,000 or something if you post pay. Oh, my but, goodness. Yeah. But like for me, it's like I knew. So I I had already been doing three different careers, right? Like the the telecom and the um the structural engineering and then the PM job and so I was I think maybe 29 or so and I was just at the age where I'm like I don't like I don't think I have time to really go back to school and get like a full software degree and so the boot camp seemed like the fastest way and yeah. and and yeah so it was just it was super challenging though because you imagine how fast you have to learn to like yeah. be hireable and you know, in three months. So it's like every week we were tested. And initially, like the first six weeks, we were tested every week. And then if you fail to test, you actually were kicked out of the program. Okay. And so like, it was already like, really, they said there was like a 2% acceptance rate. And then so even though after you're accepted, though, because it's postpaid, you know, they want to make sure they get their money back. So it's like, you, you aren't just cruising once you're accepted, they still have to make sure you're like, you know, a great engineer or you're able to get a job. And so yeah, so it's like I think about 25% of my cohort actually were kicked out 
So it was quite stressful because you have to, you know, you have to like stop your job, you know, like you doing this full time. And so people gave up a lot to join. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, I was super nervous on the first test. I actually failed the first test. The first test was just like simple logic and Ruby. But I think I got tripped up on like merge sword or something silly. And so I failed the first test and I was like, well, I can't fail anymore because even though I prepaid just to make it fair, you know, they still kick you out if you fail two tests. And so I just felt like every week I'm like, I have to ace everything and I end up pulling it off. But it was definitely really stressful. That um, is stressful. Yeah. And so. wait, I'm sorry. I need some clarification. Why is it that they kick people out after two failed tests? Because I guess they they have to have like signals to like ensure that there's a high probability of you being hired because the majority of the people in App Academy are, you know, they choose the post pay option because it is a lot of money up front. And so with post pay, you know, they they only get payment if you get a job. Oh, yeah. Wait, post pay. Which part? So you you paid up front? Yeah, I paid up front. And then there was a significant discount to pay up front. But the overwhelming majority of people who go through App Academy choose to pay after they get a job so so you know okay. like they you go on this boot camp for three months you pay yeah. them nothing and then when you get hired they take a cut of your salary okay and so they want to make sure you know you can get hired right if they put a bunch of people through who I weren't see. that strong then they're gonna just lose money so that was why okay. they aggressively cut people but yeah it was pretty stressful i think in hindsight like maybe one of the other boot camps where they don't cut people would have been better but it worked out for me for me. <laughs> Wait, so did they take a cut of yours as well, even though you paid up front? No, because I paid up front. Okay. So like that's just like a one and done and and yeah. And you got you said you it was a discounted the other people had to pay thirty K? Yeah. Thirty K was it cut out of their job offer? Is that what that was? Yeah, it was I don't know if it's still like a flat like thirty. I think it might have been more like twenty eight thousand, but yeah, almost thirty thousand, um, or if they've changed to mm-hmm. more of a percent now. Okay. Like and then there's there's some sort of like payment plan where it's mm-hmm. like um you you pay it gradually because you know you okay. can't still pay that immediately once you get a job yeah. so it was like spread out over six months or so but like you know even with a software salary you know as a junior engineer yeah. like that's really steep after taxes yeah so it's like I while like I really liked my experience I thought the instructors are great and I had a great experience like I don't think I can recommend it knowing like how aggressive that post payment model is and how much people yeah would have to like sacrifice and still potentially be kicked Mm -hmm. out that's interesting from my brief time posting about like coding on tiktok like a lot of questions i would get were like how do you like learn or like what are some resources and so because i had learned coding from going to a four-year undergraduate program it's like i don't really feel at liberty to recommend like programs other than that because i don't know the full extent but i would hear that like some boot camps like you just have to be like wary of um mm-hmm. because yeah like they could kind of take advantage of you like wanting to learn coding and yeah they could be quite expensive so it's interesting to hear like the actual breakdown of of a a boot camp that you went through um yeah. and then that actually turned into like work for you so yeah like definitely like they're I don't know. I'm not like up to date with the current boot camps, but back mm-hmm. then there were like two of the most prestigious boot camps were App Academy or Hack Hack Reactor. So like I knew that like you know the quality of the boot camp would be good, even though it was really steep. But yeah, I've definitely heard of like you know other I guess like less reputable boot camps or just taking maybe they charge less, but you know, yeah. but they like don't give a good quality um, of teaching, and so that's that's not great either. 
Yeah. Um, but like, I definitely still, you know, recommend the bootcamp model. And I saw a lot of my peers, they came from, you know, non-technical jobs, like maybe some people like admins, or like music teachers and stuff. And so it's, it's really life changing, you know, mm-hmm. even with that money that they end up paying, it's like, it just immediately their salary, like maybe double. Right. right. So it's quite life changing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting to hear as well, like the price given that like, I know like how much student debt I had when I graduated my program and yeah. the frankly the boot camp is more expensive than I thought so it, it makes me feel better about like the debt that I had and had to pay off but yeah actually with the boot camp it's interesting because this was rare but there were like a couple people in my cohort um my cohort was about I think 60 people or so actually I think it was 80 to start and then it got whittled down like um, 60 but there were like I think two or three people that actually came out of undergrad CS but they oh. had a hard time finding a job and so they actually tacked on this boot camp oh my on goodness. top of their undergrad degree because the boot camp like taught you like just I guess like more practical hands-on like mm. app experience but yeah I just like can't imagine going through school and then paying again for that and yeah yeah that that seemed like a lot <laughs> wow okay yeah that is a lot for sure Now, I would love to ask you about how you came to be the CTO of this company, NectarVet. So before that, were you at Poshmark? Yeah. So I was at Poshmark for almost four years. Yeah, I thought I had thought about potentially starting a startup, but there wasn't anything that like really, really spoke out to me. Like I, I thought I played around with some ideas in like the food space. since that's my passion. But like there wasn't anything where I'm like, OK, this is, you know, worth me spending like my whole entire time, like mm-hmm. night and day, like coding away. But at the same time, I was after like being at Poshmark for almost four years, like I already knew I wanted to find just the next challenge. So I actually told my manager, Roger, the time that I would start job searching and he was like super supportive. And so around that time, this venture studio reached out to me and they were looking for more women CTOs. This was a pretty new venture studio. I think they're around for just over a year when when they reached out to me. I was like company 15 that they formed. So they were forming companies very fast. This was What is a venture studio? Oh yeah, so a venture studio, like, this was also a new term to me. It's um you know like venture capital, you mm-hmm. like the people who give a lot of money. A venture studio is sort of like an incubator where they also provide the money, but they also are more involved with like the forming of it, even on top of like a traditional VC. And so like this venture studio, they actually chose your your vertical. Like so this, they were only doing vertical SaaS. And um, so like companies that focused on like one very specific type of software, because that, you know, at this point, a lot of the horizontal SaaS like markets already, you know, pretty dominated by a lot of big players like what Salesforce. What do you mean by that? Sorry, vertical versus horizontal SaaS. Oh, yeah. So SaaS like software as a service. Um, so like Salesforce is, you know, a company that comes to mind when you think of horizontal SaaS. So they have, uh, well, they have a lot of different things they do now, but it's like you can use Salesforce, whether you are like, you know, a at like Verizon, we use Salesforce for like, I think we actually somehow used it for like managing budget or something. And Salesforce traditionally used for like customer service stuff. So it's like, regardless of whether you are in the food world or, you know, in the retail world, it's like you can use Salesforce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's horizontal SaaS. And, but that's like really dominated by a lot of big players because that's like, you know, a really large market. And so that's what people went, VCs went for first because they're like, this is a bigger possibility of 
you know, being successful mm. versus horizontal SaaS is a very, um, it's like a very, uh, or ra- rather vertical SaaS is a specific vertical that you're targeting. So my company, uh, the vertical was veterinarians. So targeting veterinary clinics. Um, so that's like vertical SaaS. Um, another, like some of the other examples was there was one company I was targeting pest control. Hey. One's like targeting this type of like farming, one was like optometry. So like very like, you know, like smaller niche areas, yeah. but also ones that have like the potential to still grow because you can like expand to other things that are sort of, you know, related in the vertical. Like, for example, for like vet clinics, we could expand eventually to pet owners, right? And have an app for pet owners. So mm-hmm. while maybe the total addressable market is smaller, it's still you know, lucrative area. And a a lot of times these like verticals have very outdated software because there hasn't been a lot of tech VC money addressed towards them. So you can imagine like, you know, a doctor's office has very old Mm -hmm. software. So it just seems like a lot of good opportunities. So that's, so that's what this, this venture studio was targeting was only vertical SaaS. So yeah, so they, they had a whole like team of people who like crunch numbers and identify like, you know, like what will most likely do well. So they actually like handed us the idea so first they just like found me and you know, they interviewed me. They're like, okay, you think we think you know what you're talking about. Um, and then they and then they pair you up with a co-founder. So the whole model was you find they have a CEO and a CTO and they give you a vertical and then they give you a million dollars up front. So they take a lot of like the, you know, like the I guess the the like the big questions that yeah. like really when you start a company, they just sort of hand everything to you on a platter and they're mm. like, here now actually build the company so i think it was when they approached me i was like hey this is a pretty cool opportunity yeah you know it's going to be a lot of work and and it's like not something i'm super passionate about but at least it's like you know i love animals though and at least it's something i can make myself excited about like helping veterinarians rather than like the other verticals were just not like yeah i mean they're like yeah, control yeah, yeah like or there's like you know like you need you need software for everything but i was like Ugh. so at least with veterinarians it's like this is like easy this is an easy thing to explain to to you know potential hires and potential engineers because you also want to think about like who you're recruiting and like mm-hmm. how how like you know sexy is your company how like how do you recruit engineers um, so I was like, okay, this is something I can get behind. I really like the that the um the potential. So for me, I think it was a little bit different than the typical the typical process. So usually once they actually accept you, you're in this like EIR, so entrepreneur in residence. So you're in this pool of a lot of people who have been accepted and you sort of do like a co-founder dating type of thing, which is like traditional and not just this venture studio, but like a lot of VCs too, they'll help you like find co-founders. But like they honestly, they don't, I'm like not saying their name specifically intentionally because <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to, but like they really didn't do a great job of like really setting you up for success in terms of your co-founder relationship and like now in hindsight, like your co-founder relationship is everything. If you mm-hmm. don't have a good relationship, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. Like you really need to have a very strong relationship and a healthy relationship with your co-founder. Um, and so in this co-founder dating process, like people are in- encouraged to like talk to like three people max. And then like after that, you're like, okay, pick your co-founder and like go start this company. And, but for me, because I was like the one of the first, I think, women CTOs that they found, at least like I'm the first that in, I know of. And then they had a one female CEO already. So they like, even before I was, I, I accepted the offer, they sort of dangled this like 
this my co-founder in front of me they're like oh you know we have this vertical and the ceo is female and like and they're like this would be so cool if we had a female founding team yeah um so I was like, okay, this sounds great. And, yeah. and so I just sort of was like, great. And then I realized, uh, yeah, like afterwards, like you really need like months. I would say like a lot of the successful C- CEOs or just like C-level teams I found or founders rather, they have, it, they've been working together at mm-hmm. a previous company, you know, where they already had a failed startup or they were, you know, friends of friends or so like, yeah, in hindsight, it's like, I think just putting two strangers together over mm-hmm. like brief like it, it, brief interview dating process was like is not great and a lot of companies have gone on to fail like very fast because there's just going to be founder drama and disputes mm-hmm. so but yeah basically a really long-winded answer that's how I ended up finding myself as a CTO of okay. a startup that's yeah. super helpful context yeah um and yeah I feel like I'd imagine that it's a very intense relationship and you probably worked quite a bit. So like, what was your yeah. experience like being a CTO and then also like working in a startup and like working conditions and everything? And then also like, what do you think is the requirement to be recruited as you were to be a CTO? Like, what was it about your experience that made you like eligible for that, I guess? Yeah. So I guess starting with the experience question, I think like they really liked that I had like broad experience. So I think one of the traits that makes like founders, you know, good or potential to be good founders is you sort of do have a quite a broad experience. Like you don't go deep in one thing. You sort of Mm -hmm. have seen a lot of things and that makes you more flexible, you know, more willing to adapt and just, just having like more of a like perspective on things. And so I think it helped that I've been like bouncing around and I also had a product job, you know, before software, because you need a lot of when you're at the founding stage, like you're not going to have the luxury of a dedicated product person, you know, or even a dedicated designer. It's like you sort of have to do everything right. So they want Mm -hmm. people who really, really understand how to think with a product lens. Because that's like, you know, in addition to just having the right people, that's actually um, one of the hardest things about a startup is making sure you have product market fit, right? That's Mm -hmm. like, that's like everyone's nightmare. It's like you can have the best looking app in the world you can have the best team but if no one uses your app who cares right so i think having that like broad experience is great and then i think they just liked yeah i think they all also had a certain level of years of experience but um but they actually weren't that strict in like years experience like i actually felt that i was quite junior to like all of a sudden be a cto Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think they just were okay with that because i had done a lot of different jobs so i sort of have seen a lot and um, I guess it came across as like scrappy enough or whatever. And they did do some technical interviewing. So they had to do like assistant design question. And so they were like, okay, you can do this. Yeah. Mm, okay. okay. But I think it's like really just a gut feeling for them. And honestly, I wish they had interviewed like people more based on like also like just more of behavioral interviews as well. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like there just wasn't enough of that. Why do you think that is? I think I had maybe two like behavioral screens and that one technical screen i'm like you don't really like know me as a yeah. person like how do you trust me to be a good founder yeah. how are you just like, hand me a million dollars and also trust i'm gonna be you know a good partner to my potential co-founder um why do you think there wasn't as much as an emphasis on behavioral for like this type of program i mean honestly the they just want money right they just like they had so those venture studio 
they themselves weren't the provider of money. They worked with they worked with an actual not a hedge fund. I'm like blanking out on the the whole finance thing is very fuzzy, but they worked with like some sort of like finance finance company thing that had a lot of capital. And so it was like the venture studio and then they had the backing of this other group. And so they just sort of had endless money to just sort of, you know, start a bunch of companies. And so a million dollars to them was nothing, right? And so by the time I left my startup, it was it was less than a year. And by the time I left, they had already spun out over 70 companies. So I was like company 15. And then I was with them for only like 10 months. And all of a sudden, they had like 70 companies. So they were just like pumping out companies left and right. Because you know, if you throw a million dollars here and there, if one company is wildly successful and becomes a billion dollar company, you know, you get paid out. Um, The venture studio, by the way, took, they took 47% of the company. Oh, wow. So yeah, so like, it was also a very steep price to pay up front. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So their incentive was like, is financial. Okay, yeah. I see. Okay, so then once you began your role, like, how was that experience? Like, I think, yeah, you were there for 10 months? Yeah. Okay. So like, the way they set it up is they made it really hard on this, the technical co-founder, I'll be honest, because the CEOs they picked, I don't think I kn- knew a CEO that was actually, I'm sure maybe there were some there, but n- all the ones I personally met through the studio, they were not technical CEOs. Mm. Like my co-founder had a CS undergrad degree, but she had never worked in CS. She had like, I think like two or three years of management consulting experience. Mm. So she actually didn't have any CS or like any software, hands-on software experience, like practical software experience. So you know, as a software company, like that, basically, everything sort of fell on me, like in the first year. And that was yeah. true for all the other CTOs. Um, and you know, I was okay with that, because I was like, well, you know, like, you know, eventually, when we get things going, and we have customers, it's gonna be a lot on her, you know, to fundraise to get sales, like eventually, when there was a sales team, like she would have to manage that. And so, you know, I understood that, like, the lift was very heavy initially, but then eventually, it would also be more equal. Um, but that's also another advice for potential like software founders is have another technical co-founder. It's very, very lonely to like, like before I hired my founding team, like it's just very lonely to struggle through, you know, making technical software decisions alone because my co-founder couldn't help me with any of that. And luckily I reached out to uh, like other founders and they like connected me with like their CTOs. I had a little bit of mentorship, but not that much. The venture studio had like a, engineer like head of engineering inside the venture studio but like he was honestly not very helpful so like it was just very very lonely just sitting there being like you know do I use like you know a relational database do I actually use non-relational it was just like stuff like that where I was going back and forth and so yeah it was very very painful yeah (laughs) yeah that's a lot and then also the recruiting right like um at that stage like with the speed so they wanted they were targeting like four months once you had your founding team to have an MVP, a minimum viable product. So within four months, they wanted people to start like you want to have customers and stuff. So you're going pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to really do that yourself, you know, especially given I think everyone's product is different, but our product was actually very, very front end heavy just because the nature of what we were trying to do was like creating like nice software for veterinarians to like schedule staff to like actually intake patients to do like medical record keeping, to Mm -hmm. take inventory, to take insurance. So there was a lot going on there. Um, It was a pretty big ask. 
and we couldn't do like a, a point solution, which is like some of the other verticals were able to do like, oh, you know, maybe the, well, the one thing they're missing that's super important is like maybe a communication tool. So they only started with like the communication tool before like our particular vertical. We're like, we really need to do a complete rip and replace solution. So we have to sort of overhaul overhaul the whole software to convince companies to adopt us to the, these veterans adopt us. So it was just a lot bigger ask for an MVP. So I was like, I need to hire a founding team of at least three other very senior engineers, you know, if not four. Um, and and so recruiting was really, really tough. This was in 2021, you know, when there was still like endless tech money flowing and mm-hmm. it was really hard. And, you know, all the software engineers were, um, you know, still had very cushy jobs. So to convince, you know, people and I was targeting at first I was targeting like, you know, mid to senior level um, and then I had, I ended up, my first hire ended up actually being a completely junior engineer from my boot camp. He was a referral from one of my boot camp classmates. And um, I didn't, you know, want a person with no experience. You know, I think there's a time place for that, but definitely not at a software company where you're trying to move as fast as you can and you're the first hire. So unfortunately, I had to let him go after a month. Um, so, I, you know, I made a, a couple of hiring mistakes and then, but eventually I learned to like, to like hire like I just overhauled overhauled my whole like recruiting strategy to basically like reach out to only senior people and I had to like reach out to I think like a hundred people a day like cold emails or just LinkedIn messages it was really tough but eventually I got a founding team of five people total so three of them were full-time founding engineers they all had at least eight years experience. So more experience than I had, like, which is pretty incredible, convincing very senior people to join me. And then I had a senior contractor who works full time for a pretty big tech company, but he just had a lot of free time. So he was able to contract. And then I had an intern who was also quite senior because he was doing a master's in software. So I had a really, really great, strong team, Mm -hmm. just really great people too, like just really fun to work with. And um, so once I had the team, it was like things really started um, moving along, but it took me, you know, like I would say three, four four months to actually get to that team. Yeah. And then in that time, like recruiting is not fun. Like I had some days where I had like five or six interviews and while I like talking to people, it's really tiring to do that many interviews like day in, day out, especially when like, you know, some of them were coding technical, like intensive coding interviews. just you. And it was only me because my, you know, my co-founder wasn't technical, so she Mm -hmm. couldn't really help me in that aspect. So yeah, so I was, I will say like, I was like, I feel like I was on the verge of constantly burning out. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like that. For yeah, sure. And like, how, like, how did this compare to like your job at Poshmark? Like, both in terms of like, I guess, salary and then like work life balance or like hours that you would work. Oh, it was, I like, it was so I think like every typical stereotype is like true outs like <laughs> you, you know, I, I think I like took a like 50% pay cut and like because I'm like paying myself the bare minimum to live in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and then on top of that I'm working four times as much as I was working at Poshmark like it would be it would not be unheard of for me to literally be working 16 hours a day um you know and versus like at Poshmark it's like I feel like like if I really actually thought about the time I was actually intensely coding it was maybe like four hours and like you know a few hours of like chatting with people or like yeah. going around the office doing whatever so yeah it was it was definitely complete night and day but it was really I was enjoying the challenge like okay. I was like wow like it feels really cool to 
to really be creating like to be like mm. I created something from scratch like I literally yeah. made you know all the decisions and the stack and I yeah. and I don't know why like I, I decided to have a Python backend well I knew why for recruiting reasons because it's easier to recruit Python engineers um, but for me that was a challenge because I my language is Ruby so I'd like learn Python on top of learning like a mm-hmm. new framework but it was cool to be like you know I pick that and then I personally like architected the whole like database architecture model because that's what I love doing so it was like really cool to think through you know every way you could architect like clinics and if people will share databases of it was just it was like a pretty exciting time so yeah things were going pretty well um until they weren't yeah yeah so like what like when did I guess when did it like turn for you yeah so I think like it took me because I was just working so hard. It took me a little bit to realize like why I felt like I was burnt out. And because like I can actually I'm a workaholic. I can work a good amount like like just coding in itself, even for, you know, that many hours a day was was not like not that bad for me. But I was like, I just felt like I like wasn't happy with like, I don't know, just, I was just feeling really stressed out. And I realized it was pressure from my Mm co-founder. And I realized that like our expectations, like are the way we just, the way we lead and the way we communicate and just the way we like interact with the world, were just complete polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to communicate. Like, you know, in software, like things just are constantly changing. Like I try to give accurate estimates, but you know, like things just get delayed. Like that just happens in yeah. software. And it's hard to explain to someone, even with a CS degree, if they haven't worked in like a software like environment as a job, like that, like, you know, this just like one design change, like the requirements were changing a lot. And she'd be like, oh, you know, the the advisors are talking to actually like don't want this anymore. So we're changing requirements again. So like there were a lot of moving parts. I think it was just a lack of understanding of, hey, like this is not as simple as you think it will be. Mm-hmm. And also just like just the way like our our management styles were very different. Like so my thought once we had the software team, like I, I'm like a very hands off manager. So it's like me managing like, you know, five very senior engineers. And of course, because I hired them, like they obviously are like similar to me in personality, you know, and they um, so everyone's just like, you know, just if you don't micromanage me, like I, I know what I'm doing, like, you know, I want autonomy. And they're also all older too, like most of them are in their 30s as well. And so we're like, hey, like, you know, we got something good going here, just let us be. And her management style is very much like, like, coming from the top down being like, hey, like, you know, what I say is what happens. Um, and it was very micromanaging too. And so it was just a lot to like manage her because like technically she was my manager because like the CEO was at the top. And so even though like we were co-founders and I own the same amount of equity as her and, you know, the same amount of board seats, she's still like legal is like the, the person at the top, right? What yeah. she says goes. So it was like really hard for me to manage my team like everything's going great while sort of shielding them from like the stress Mm -hmm. I felt you know trying to manage her yeah um and I think I just realized that was slowly like just like literally I think like ripping me apart and I actually landed in the ER like like I think was it I guess it was last July yeah like and I had severe stomach pain and I thought I actually thought I had appendicitis because it was like I had never felt pain that bad and and like I have an iron stomach, like I can eat like anything. And so I'm like, okay, maybe it's food poisoning, but this really hurts for food poisoning. And like my friend that I was with that day, he didn't feel anything really. And 
And so I'm like, okay, maybe this is appendicitis. And so I went to the like ER at like 1am and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And like looking back on it, I think it was just stress. Yeah, I really think it was stress. And I think it was my body being like, I just I cannot like have a functioning relationship with this person anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that was like, that was just like the beginning of the end. Um, around that time, a lot of other things also happened. Like, um, I broke up with my boyfriend, a very short term relationship. It was like two months, but it was just the weirdest, like, most unhealthy, like relationship ever. Mm-hmm. And then like, and then also I had like falling out with my roommate and then like I, I put a bunch of I put like my life savings in like crypto and then like the platform I use Voyager also went bankrupt. And so I was like, there's just a lot going on. Oh, that is a lot. Yeah. It was like literally like everything was falling that apart. So much. Yeah. Like roommate, boyfriend, work, finances, like literally everything. Wasn't your phone stolen out of Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. On top of that, like. Yeah, like I was literally, and I've never, that's never happened. Like I've never even lost a phone before. Actually, the one time I did, I found it under my bed like a month later. So it's like, this isn't like stuff that usually happens to me. Um, But I had just moved too. So like I also moved. So there's a lot of change going on. And like Mm -hmm. the first week I moved, I was walking to my old place because I still went to the gym at my old place at the Equinox there. And so I was walking and literally someone just steals the phone out of my hand. I was like, great, like. So just like sort of this like, I really think that like, you know, like stuff can spiral. So I think I just wasn't a good place and everything was spiraling. And then it was really actually funny. I think like a week after that happened, the internet actually went down at my new place. And like, so I was like using the internet in the common room. And it was like, I had spent all day, it was the week of our like soft launch. So we finally had test customers, public test customers use our product Mm -hmm. and so it was like a friday we had just launched so i spent like all day debugging with my back-end team um i forgot we were debugging but we were debugging something with the user experience but i didn't have internet so i was like in the common room my apartment and like and then my co-founder is just like hey do you have time to meet and i'm like oh like you know i'm needing to like eat lunch when we can talk like while i'm eating lunch and she's like no like let's talk a little bit later and then she decides to she decides to like ask me to step down in the meeting all of a sudden and like I knew that like we like our relationship was slowly degrading but I didn't think all of a sudden she would like ask me to step down like during the week of our launch yeah you know and so and I was like you know what like can we just talk about this later like I'm literally in the middle of debugging and like it's like I'm on slack like I, I took a screenshot but I'm like literally talking to my team like I don't know what's happening but like Anyway, so so I, like I sign off or I sign off the the Google Hangout call because I'm just like really annoyed at her and I was pretty snappy. I said some mean things, but I'm like I'm just like we're not talking about this because I'm literally trying to work. Yeah. And she took that as like me like and she took that as like a reason, a legal enough reason for me to like be threatening the company, and that was reason for her to like suddenly fire me. So she cut off my Google access first. Um, and I got like, I think immediately got a notification being like, you can't log into your Gmail. And so I Slack the the two people I'm talking to on my team. I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but like Joanna just cut off my access. So I think I'm just going to be leaving then. So like, that's literally how I found out I lost my job. It was like really, really crazy. That is like traumatic. Yeah. It was, that it was sh- super traumatic. Yeah. yeah. It was that short after all this stuff happening in your life. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a oh, week I after know. I moved and everything. So I was already like not doing great. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like it was just like I had already, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. 
or psychiatrist or anything, but I already suspected she like had some, you know, some like personality disorder tendencies and like lack of empathy. And like, I was like, like, I've gone through a lot of therapy after that. Like I took, you know, nine months off of work because it was definitely traumatic. Like I was diagnosed with PTSD after that. Um, But I'm like, yeah, she just, I can't really explain what happened. Like, Mm -hmm. cause I'm like, even if like if things were reversed, like even if like even if like my co-founder was just completely incompetent, I would never do that to a human being. Yeah. Like she gave, she left me, she legally left me with no equity because it was before my equity cliff. So even though I own the same amount as her, like legally she didn't have to give me anything because we signed a one year cliff. She could have because she has all the say like in like U.S. law, like she can still give me any equity she wants. But because legally she wasn't forced to, she decided to give me no equity. And then she only gave me a month of severance. And I was like, she knew I wouldn't take him. Like, I'm not going to sign away my legal rights for one month of pay, given that, like, I basically created the company myself. So I didn't sign that. And she just, like, my venture studio, they were trying to help me negotiate. They chose not to, like, overturn her, even though they had board voting power. And this is something, this is a pattern. They have actually kept true their word, at least. Like, in all the founder disputes, they've never, like, stepped in to, like, remove a co-founder. They're just like, we just won't do it. They'd rather just see companies fail. Even with, like, their superstar company that, like, went to Series A very quickly, they still didn't step in for their dispute. But, like, I was just super frustrated because it's like, they're like, you know, it's just between you and her. And yeah. and I'm like, well, you don't understand, like, the type of personality you're working with. She literally is just not, like, a normal human being. And so she just, she was okay literally giving me nothing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was pretty traumatic. But, you know, I'm grateful that I have no family. I have no children to support. Yeah. Um, you know, and that my parents actually stepped in to help me financially. So mm-hmm. I was able to take a long break because I mentally needed it. Yeah. But it's like insane to think about that anyone could just do that and be like, that's okay to do. Like, just as a human being, I'm like, I still struggle with how she could do that to anyone. Yeah. 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 I would struggle as well, especially after you put all those hours in and literally built the product from scratch and hired all the engineering team from scratch. Yeah. And like on top of that, she didn't have, you know, an actual good reason for why she let me go. So she was just making up things about me to the engineering team. So, um, so like I was luckily, like I was pretty close with, well, I was pretty close with a couple engineers, like one I was close closest to and I still uh, text them occasionally. And it's like we were just like back and forth on calls being like, what's going on? Like, holy shit, you know, and um, and he said that she basically had told him that like because she called everyone up personally being like, oh, like, you know, I let Adrian go. And like, I'm sure everyone was like, what the actual hell? But she told one engineer, she's like, oh, I had planning. I was planning to let her go like for like months like beforehand already so like it was all like premeditated it was really weird but she's like i just didn't because of your close relationship with her like so telling my engineer because like you know adrian and you were so close like i i was like waiting it out to so basically she waited strategically until you know we got to the point where we had a proven mvp we got customers to be able to sign in and use the product to let me go so it was yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it was pretty crazy. And yeah, that engineer eventually left the company. But as far as I know, the other two founding engineers were still with the company. And I think the intern stayed. I don't know what happened to the contractor. But like, so honestly, like I felt a little bit betrayed, too, because yeah. like my team like had a really healthy relationship with me. But also 
you know, I've come to the understanding that I can't blame them for needing job security, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, they all still had to have a paycheck. Right. You know, and the, the engineer that was like, that kept in contact with me the most, like, you know, he eventually left, but he still, you know, had to ensure he had a jo- job lined up to leave. And so like, I realized like, I can't really blame them, but it yeah. would have been nice if I just had like people, you know, like come to my back. And so, right. cause that's how I am as a person. So now when like I ever hear about any injustice or something, like I'm already sort of like the person that's not afraid to be like, oh, you know, I'll like call people out. Yeah. Now it's like I definitely make it a point to like if I hear about like any injustice, my friends or even strangers, I'll I'll be the first person to be like, yeah, like let me like talk to that person. Yeah. Like Aww. just because like when you're in that situation, you just want people to be there for you. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. like that changed you like in that way like before you were working at NectarVet versus now like like what do you think you've like learned or changed from that all of that yeah well I've definitely learned a lot about like startups and like just legal ways to protect yourself so I think as part of my healing I like I like I this is a long-term thing I like want to be like and continue to be an advocate for like startup awareness and transparency so you know I wrote a blog post about my experience but also like wrote this short LinkedIn thing about my lessons learned but like if anyone for a while actually a lot of people are just randomly finding me on LinkedIn like like other CTOs in my venture studio or just you know a lot actually a lot of Poshmark people like like reached out to me too and of course like you know I post about it in my Instagram so my Mm -hmm. followers also reaching out you know I gave everyone like the, I think the one critical piece of advice that I would give anyone who's like looking at startups is like, apps like if you're going in at a founder level or even like as an early hire, like a founding engineer, absolutely negotiate your severance beforehand, pre-negotiate. Mm-hmm. It's like a prenup for work, right? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. le- like it's just it seems weird to do, but like if you're going in at that level, like of course, like don't negotiate your severance if you're just joining any old company. That's a little weird. But like if you're going at that level legally, just protect yourself because there's just such there's a sad like high probability of you encountering like bad actors and I think something that I don't ever necessarily helped my healing but talking to other you know founders like people just found their way towards me and they were really supportive and just hearing all the other founder stories like it became really clear that like so many people have been backstabbed like this is so common that's actually the norm it's really sad so like you really really need to be really wise about protecting mm. yourself if you want to go into the startup world because it just it attracts people who yeah you know could be narcissists or just people who want power over anything else yeah. and so like I feel like everyone who's been a founder has like a terrible story about how they've been screwed over that is very scary yeah do you think that you would ever consider doing something like that again just with like the new knowledge that you have not from the beginning like honestly like after that like I like even though like now like you know people are like oh you know usually most people's first startups fail and so like a lot of VCs love like recruiting people who have had one startup under their belt or two you know it's like a now like like now I know what to do or what not to do mm-hmm. and I think I could do it much better and faster this time but like I'm just so I'm still burnt out when right. I think about my experience. I just never, I just don't have the motivation to really ever do that again. And and I am older too. And so I'm like, at this point, like I'm focused on, you know, like getting, becoming a mom one day and having mm-hmm. a family and that's just my focus now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what do you, you just started a new job. Is that right? Yeah. 
Okay. So what are you doing now and how did you pick that job and how is the process of like getting back into work in general? Yeah. So I started a new job just over like a month ago and I feel very lucky to have this job. Like um, I guess I didn't talk much about Poshmark, which is like we know each other, but like I was really lucky that I saw an example of a very healthy company, you know, one that when I joined, I think it was like Series D. This was already pretty late stage. The work-life balance was healthy. But like on top of that, the people were just like, at least within engineering, they were just like just good people. Mm-hmm. Like they cared. And I made, you know, friendships, not just like, you know, work friendship. Like people like I now talked, I still talk to people from Poshmark. And then just the leadership was just like very transparent, very empathetic. And so like after like my experience with my own startup and my co-founder and then the startup I was at before was also similarly like crazy. Like I knew that more, the most important thing for me is looking for a culture that I really, you know, can get on board with. And so I just was really filtering for like in my interview process, um, you know, just really asking, Hey, like, what do you think about the CEO, what do you think about the executive leadership? Like, do you trust them? Is there transparency? Just really looking for that. Also looking for more senior leaders. Like, I think, um, I think just like, there's something to be said about just having years of experience. And like, I hate that that is a thing. But like, you know, there's been a lot of studies, like when you're just, you know, even when you're 25, it's like your brain is still sort of just, you know, like logical decision making is still getting formed. Yeah. Um, I think people can do a lot of incredible things young, but just when you're at that level of like when you're like at, you know, executive level and you're like moving so fast and you're calling the shots, like I just I found that like, you know, people who are just been around longer, who are just older and wiser, like mm-hmm. they tend to just make better decisions and and like there's just an environment that I think I work better with rather than like move fast, break things and like who cares about mm-hmm. people you know so of course that's like you know it's it's sort of a blanket statement I can't say that but like so I think I but I was looking for just companies where they had like more senior leadership as well but you know again it's just hard you don't you don't really know until you start you know in the role and and once I started I was like wow this company I'm at this company called Secure Frame it's a security compliance startup pretty small I think around I think like 140 people or so um series B but like even when I started I was like wow this company is like just like the diversity of the people and then the like intentionality of a lot of like, like it's still like pretty early stage, but I think I was under impression that it would be like, you know, a little bit more of a wild, wild West. And I was like pleasantly surprised to see how like organized things were like the level of like, Mm -hmm. you know, senior staff engineers there were and um, all the documentation. I'm just like, wow, this is, like my onboarding experience was the smoothest it's ever been. Like, yeah. So I'm just like, I'm really happy with with where I landed. It definitely is. I think for me, I'm just struggling with like going from nine months of like not really working to like working. now like working well past eight hours a day just because like I'm I'm like, you know, my own like harshest critic. So mm-hmm. like, like I think I'm I'm doing fine from like my company's perspective. I'm just like, no, like I need to be onboarding faster. <laughs> but like I'm enjoying the challenge and yeah. And also I'm just really grateful to have this job because I will say like I started job searching um two months before I found a job. So so yeah, I started it took me two months to find a job and mm-hmm. like um I guess I feel like 
like spoiled for saying that but two months for me is a very very long time you know and this is this was definitely the hardest economy for searching for like a tech job it's yeah. been, it was insane but i also know people who've been looking for six plus months you know so i still feel very lucky i found a job quickly but it was just it was just really hard like i actually hadn't i had an easier time getting a job out of boot camp with like no experience do you think it's because of the economy yeah mostly i think it's just because everyone is you know on a hiring freeze or all the big companies are so there's just a lot of like big companies are not it's just not a kind of like company i would personally want to work for but because they're all in hiring freezes you know it's like affects everyone in the market so the pool is just oversaturated with a lot of qualified people that are also applying to all these smaller startups and you know, on top of that there's you know layoffs like i feel like every other day now you still hear about them and yeah, so it's still happening which is a very competitive market yeah yeah well that's good that you found a place that you like yeah and it's also really nice to hear about all your experience and especially in software engineering i just feel like that's really useful to know for someone like me who's like not even three years in and hasn't had any other industry experience outside of data engineering so Mm -hmm. yeah it's really interesting to hear about that and like how maybe your priorities change or like the things that matter to you based on your experiences. So, yeah. 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 I think like for me, it's like, I'm just like, my takeaway is like, I'm really grateful. Like I saw a lot of like different industries and also different roles, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like, so I've really been able to say that like, I've, you know, done a lot and I don't have any regrets. Like I don't regret being a founder sometimes i regret leaving poshmark because it's such a happy place yeah. and they're on a hiring freeze but um but like i know i really look back and i don't regret being a founder like because i think you know like if i just think back like if i'm on my deathbed and you know i feel like i'm the kind of person i'm like oh my god i really just wish i like you know took that job and like so like i'm glad i i went th- down that path but like, I wish I just, I wish I was wiser about, yeah, ways to like set better boundaries, you know, ways to be more aware of like what was going on with my relationship with my co-founder and just like really understanding, like, I think especially the legal aspect of it and how mm-hmm. to protect myself. And yeah, so those are things like I going back, I wish I had learned those lessons faster, yeah. but I really don't regret like the experience. Yeah. 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 I feel like when you're saying like you want to be an advocate for like startup transparency yeah i feel like that would also be like a good way to like heal you know like help other people protect them from like things that happen to you yeah totally like i thought about like maybe writing a a book one day you know it's like i feel like it's such a luxury to be able to just like Mm -hmm. write a book right yeah but like i'm a big fan of emily radikowski and she Mm -hmm. she wrote in my body and it's just like a really, I think, honest uh, take at, you know, what she dealt with. And so it's like, oh, I sort of like, I could see, like, I feel like I have a lot to say in that in a similar style, but with like me being in tech, mm-hmm. right? And and actually, like, a lot of my experiences, like, I've experienced some sexism from men. It's still really rare. Like, I think I've been very lucky with my trajectory, because I think I mentioned in the beginning, like, I just was in a very supportive environment where, like, people are just like, yeah, like, it doesn't matter if you look like this, you should, you should, you should be a great software engineer or whatever, any technical person. But like, I will say like, yeah, I feel like I got the most sexism, honestly, from my co-founder. Um, And 
just like there's just the things to be aware of that like you know you don't have to you can be hurt by like people who maybe look like you or maybe have similar backgrounds and and like at the end of the day it's like i'm reflecting on you know things she did which is like way crazier than like any guy has done to me but i feel like that would be a really interesting thing to put in a mm-hmm. book and yeah i think just i think like talking a lot about like i'm a very emotional person um and then like i'm very i'm just like a very transparent person too i think that's like it comes through on my instagram like and so i think um you know on top of just startup uh awareness i think just being able to like let people feel like they can just be themselves. I think like a lot of what people struggle with is like, you know, holding things back or like, you know, having to like be a certain way. And I I still struggle with that. You know, I'm going to struggle with that my whole life. I think we all do to some extent, but I think the older I get, the like, just the less I care about like having to act a certain way. And I think um, me like encouraging, telling people, you know, about that and is, um, is like, I find, I hope that like helps people and is more liberating. Yeah. Also just like also being not afraid to show emotions. I think that's one good thing about social media is like, there's a lot more discussion about like mental health, you know, awareness and how it's okay to cry on camera and things. Mm-hmm. And and I really like love the examples at Poshmark where like, you know, like our, the like Manish, you know, he would be like, he would like be emotional sometimes. He'd be so touched by like birthday celebrations, yeah. you know, or mm-hmm. like Jolyn was like, she's cried on camera before too. And it's like, that's okay. That's part of being yeah. human. And we don't have to, you know, like be a robot. And like, maybe that's not the healthiest way to manage. Um, and so just, yeah, just sharing like yeah. a different, just a different way of leadership style that has traditionally been seen as like, you know, weak or, or like, um, you know, over certain gender or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is bringing back memories of Poshmark and yeah. very, very good memories. Well, on that note, like, do you have, so I'm 25 and very new into my career. Like, do you have advice for people like me who are just starting out like in tech? And yeah, I feel like they're like, I don't really know which way to go. Like that, there's a lot of things I consider. So yeah, I don't know. Do you have any advice? I guess that was very vague, but. Yeah, I would say like, you know, don't be afraid to just explore different options while you have the time. Like, um, I just, I like to just like, yeah, put it into like a long time frame perspective, right? It's like, just imagine yourself on your deathbed or just even when you're yeah. 60 or just like, you know, what, what would bother you, right? Is it like, what would bother you the most? And if it's like, oh, mm-hmm. it would really bother me because I'm always, well, I would be wondering whether like I should have just tried this other job or something, you know, and, just do it. Like it might be scary. And for me, like after doing, you know, four careers and, and, you know, literally starting at the beginning for most of them. And so I think a lot of what society, like society puts a lot of pressure on like, you know, spending years on one thing and being senior or like, you know, if you're at 25, should already, you know, be like a mid-level at your field or whatever, because you should have like four years of experience. And it's scary to like start over. But, you know, I started over when I was what, like 28, 29. And, you know, starting over to be like a junior engineer is, is actually not too bad, you know, because engineers just get paid okay. But, you know, there's still so much societal pressure. I'm just like, oh God, what's it like, you know, now like being in my 30s and like still not having, you know, like everyone else in their 30s has like, you know, 15 years of experience in software or something. But it's mm-hmm. like, at the end of the day, it's like, you really want to like be true to yourself and you really want to find 
Like you really want to be able to say, you know, years down the road that you really, really tried exploring your options and that you don't regret not doing anything or not doing something you really wanted to. And yeah, so I think that's my biggest piece of advice is like, while you have the time, this is the time to take those like yeah. big leaps. And it's, it's, it's okay to mess up, you know, and yeah, even, yeah, even like, you know, the last whatever six months, I've struggled a lot with, oh, you know, I'm turning 35 this year, like, I it took a lot of time off. And on top of that, I, I have a vice of like trading on the stock market. So it's like, I literally just like threw away my whole life savings almost on that. And I'm like, I feel like I'm starting from square one, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I saw myself with like, at least two kids by now, whatever with the house or whatever. But I'm like, I am glad I've had all this experience because like, even though while I may not be where I thought I would be in where society says I am, like, I don't regret that I tried all these things. I moved, you know, every year and I did all that. And yeah, and it just makes you, it like makes you be that much of a better person, you know, a better employee, a better partner, better parent if you want to be a parent eventually just to have that breadth of experience mm-hmm. so i am very much in a team the camp of like breath over depth <laughs> breath over depth yeah. and there's a book you recommend it range yeah range. range yeah can't remember the author but yeah it's it's range david, david? So, no i don't know yeah i don't know um, but yeah that was it's like it wasn't anything groundbreaking but it was just great to mm-hmm. um to hear about like just the way um i listened on audiobook the way he narrated like just different examples of people yeah. who um have like jumped around a lot and and like uh you know how they it just manifest as them being effective more effective leaders yeah that's good to hear um especially as like someone who just started in software engineering and sometimes I feel like it's hard to think about pivoting because software engineering does pay so well so if I want to leave software engineering just thinking about that but I think as more time goes on it becomes less about that and more about like what is going to make me happy yeah and that's something that I didn't really consider to be honest like right out of college just because I didn't have any industry experience so I didn't know what would make me happy But yeah, so it's really helpful to hear your advice. And yeah, it was helpful to hear all of that. So thank you so much for your time and like transparency and honesty and sharing all those details. Um, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been, Yeah. yeah, it's been so great to be able to share. And that's that is what I love to do, right? That's why I have my Instagram, which is like me yeah. sharing whatever. It's honestly sort of cathartic too to be able to talk. Yeah. Yeah. So. Definitely. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Passion Project Pending. If ever you're so inclined or have any feedback on the podcast, I so appreciate any rating or review. This helps me improve and helps my podcast to reach more eyes, which in turn will help me continue to produce these episodes and hear more enlightening and inspiring stories from future guests. Tune in next week for an interview with a life optimization coach and practiced entrepreneur.